Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by RTS Washington, part of a 50 plus year endeavor to train pastors and other Christian leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the service of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I am the president here at RTS Washington, a professor of Old Testament, and I'm joined by Dr. Peter Lee, our assistant professor, associate professor rather of Old Testament and dean of students here at RTS Washington. Hey, Peter. Hey, Scott. Good to be with you. Great to have you. I'm also joined by Jennifer Patterson, our director of the Institute of Theology and Public Life. Hi, Jennifer. Great to be with you. Thank you. It's great to have you. And I'm joined by Dr. Gray Sutanto, assistant professor of systematic theology and our man in Jakarta, Indonesia. Hey, Gray, how are you? Hey, Scott. Great to be here, as always. Well, we have a special treat today. We are going to talk with Dr. Chris Watkin about his book, Thinking Through Creation. And I wanna pass it over to Gray to get this conversation started. Yeah, thanks so much, Scott. Uh, let me introduce our guest here in the faculty podcast. Dr. Chris Watkin is a senior lecturer in French studies at Monash University in Australia, Melbourne, Australia. He's the author of many books on phenomenology and deconstruction, uh, difficult atheism. He's also the editor of a series in European philosophy for Edinburgh University Press. Uh, he's also an author of Christian theology and Christian philosophy specifically, and we've actually assigned a couple of his uh, texts here in our classes at RTSDC, and so we are thrilled to have him here. Welcome here, Dr. Chris Watkin. It's my pleasure to be here, Greg. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you. Uh, Chris, just to get us going here, we'd love to hear about your own expertise. You did your PhD at Cambridge University. And of course, it's on French philosophy, right? And so we would love to hear about how you got into Christian theology and Christian philosophy studying this at Cambridge, given that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you didn't have a seminary background, but at the same time, you still delved into this in a very persuasive and academic way. So please tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, thank you, Gray. I, I guess that philosophy and Christianity have always gone hand in hand for me. I became a Christian when I was about um, 15 years old. And that was when I began getting interested in, in big ideas as well. And philosophers and Christians have always had an attraction to me of being two of the, the very few groups in society today who are asking the big questions seriously. Now they're asking them differently and they come to different conclusions, but it's rare today to get people who really engage with those, those fundamental questions of life. And so I've, I've always seen the, the philosophy that I study as complementary to my Christian faith, not, not that it agrees, but that it helps me uh, to think in order to understand uh, the scriptures uh, and my own faith better. Uh, and so I uh, had the privilege of, of going to university, which, you know, uh, today is, is harder and harder financially, isn't it, for people? But I, I had the, the, the wonderful privilege of being able to go to university. And um, there were any number of, of big ideas floating around in the atmosphere there and people who believed them very staunchly and could argue for them very well and very few of them very few of them were christian ideas uh, and so um the the question that that faced a christian undergraduate like me was what are you going to do with that you know are you going to shut it off and pretend it's not there are you going to buy into these ideas and pretend that the bible is is saying the same thing what, what are you going to do with that and so i guess 
little by little, I, I started reading and thinking about, well, what do Christians make of these ideas and how would the Bible engage with these big ideas that are floating around philosophy departments and, and cultural studies and so forth. And I guess I've tried in, in my own thinking and writing to do something like a Bible overview, but for the culture. So studying a Bible overview was, was a real eye-opener for me. Um, just as Nancy Guthrie was saying on one of these episodes, um, that it, it blows your mind when people, when Christians often study a Bible overview for the first time, it's so thrilling. Well, that was me. Uh, and I thought, my goodness, the whole thing holds together. The whole thing is about Jesus. It's a narrative. This is amazing. And I thought, what would, what would it look like to do the same sort of thing for culture? What's the underlying narrative? And um, how does the whole thing hold together? And, and so that's what I've tried to do in my work, to to use a creation for redemption framework and to read the culture through that as a way of coming to terms with these big ideas that are floating around, not simply by rejecting them and pretending they're not there, uh, not simply by embracing them and pretending, you know, that they're the next reformation or something, uh, but in order to engage with them deeply, um, subtly, robustly from a, a biblical point of view. Yeah. And you do that so well, especially in your thinking through creation book, uh, which is just the first part of hopefully a much longer project that we're very excited about. And you specifically point to the doctrines of the Trinity and creation as a way of talking about Christian philosophy and how theology actually intersects with culture. Um, that's probably to even a lot of our Christian listeners counterintuitive, right? Because oftentimes people say the Trinity is just about God and himself. It shows that God is unique and transcendent. It's not to be uh, use as a lens through which we take a look at culture. Some people might say that. So what would you say in response to that perhaps, and also how it is that the Trinity and creation specifically, these two oftentimes problem problematized doctrines, right, are actually useful for thinking about these things? Look, I, I think it's no exaggeration that it's, it's a real tragedy if people think that the Trinity is only um, sort of a, a, an abstruse theological doctrine that tells us something about the nature of God and that has no application in the real world. It, it seems very strange to me that something so fundamental about reality could have no, um, no practical uh, outcome. And I, I think that the, the way uh, that I see it is that the, um, the Trinity really just fundamentally rewrites the rules almost for philosophy from the ground up, because it, it cuts across so many of the assumptions that, that philosophers of all different stripes and colors make today. So if we, if we just sort of step through it really quickly, um, the, the, the first thing that I think is incredibly significant in the way that the Bible sees the world and sets it apart from all the different schools and, and tribes of philosophers out there is that, that for the Bible, fundamental reality is, is personal. You know, fun, God is fundamental. There's nothing more basic than, than he is. And he is not a, a, an abstract concept. He's a per, he is personal. Um, and that already gives a very different way of looking at, at human persons. Um, so not as some epiphenomenal sort of thing that's happened to bubble up in the universe that's got, got no basis, uh, but that is something that is in line with the fundamental reality. There's a dignity to persons in a universe where fundamental reality is personal in a way that it's very hard to get to uh, if fundamental reality is, is a force or matter or something like that. Um, but of course, fundamental reality isn't just personal for Christians, it's also absolute. You know, God is not just personal, um, he is 
fundamental. Uh, there is nothing more basic, nothing uh, uh, more real than God. He's absolute in that way. And then you marry the personal and the absolute in that way, giving you what, what John Frame and others have called absolute personality theism. Um, and there's no, there's no dichotomy uh, between um, sort of uh, uh, abstract truth or, or radically absolute truth and the personal. And already, we haven't even got to the Trinity yet, Already we've got a reconciliation between the arts and the sciences, um, the, the, the fundamental reality and the personal reality. There's no dichotomy between those in the Christian point of view, but it is hard to marry them up if you don't have this absolute personal starting point. But then, of course, you've got to go further. We're not, we're not at the Trinity yet. Uh, fundamental reality for Christians isn't just personal, isn't just absolute, it's relational. God is not one person. He is three persons. Um, uh, in one God. And therefore, from a Christian point of view, you don't have to work relationship into your view of the world. Uh, you don't start with individual um, sort of atoms that then you've got to link up in somehow. You, you can't get more basic than the Trinity. God doesn't start off as three individuals who then come together. Uh, the relationality of God is fundamental. And again, huge implications. We could spend the whole rest of this podcast talking about the implications of that for society uh, and politics and the way that, that we configure relationships and the importance that we give to relationships in our way of thinking about the world. But again, we're not, we're not there yet. That's not the Trinity yet, because the Trinity isn't composed of some sort of generic vanilla-flavored relationship, relationship in the abstract. The Bible gives content to those Trinitarian relationships. And if you create a list of all the verses that talk about the way in which the father relates to the son before the creation of the world, there's one theme that keeps coming back again and again and again. And it's the theme of love. You know, the love with which you loved me before uh, the creation of the world. And, and therefore, not only relationality, but loving relationality is the fundamental bedrock, the deepest reality that um, more fundamental than which there is nothing in the universe is love. And um, some theologians have really gone, gone to town on this and, and begin, began trying to work out, well, what does that mean then for the way we think about society and reality? Um, and the one contrast that's often made is that if you don't have love as the fundamental reality of the universe, uh, you, you tend to end up with something like power of violence, uh, and Friedrich Nietzsche is the, the characteristic uh, way in which you, you can see this playing out. Uh, the relationships are fundamentally um, uh, structured around relationships of power and violence. And if you just think for a moment about two visions of society, one in which the fundamental reality uh, is irreducibly relational, personal love, that that's what reality is at its most basic and another view of society uh, in which uh, it is violence and power that is most basic. I, I think most people would know which of those two worlds they want to live in. Absolutely. And I think what really comes out in, in your text, you mentioned Friedrich Nietzsche just now, is that as you're emphasizing the Christian worldview and also the fundamental character of the Trinity of relationality and love, fundamental Christian doctrines that every Christian holds on to, this has actually led you not to a greater resistance of, let's say, modern and postmodern philosophy, but rather your work has been incredibly helpful even for me to, to, to illumine these texts and to actually help us 
get an, a patient understanding of them, right? And you also continue to engage with them. Whereas oftentimes I think people would say, if you take a look at Christian doctrine, you're going to be more and more separationistic. You're going to be more and more suspicious of especially modernity and post-modernity, but your Plato to postmodernism was a fantastic text. And also your little books for PNR, your, your little uh, introductory volume on Foucault, on Derrida, and also coming on Deleuze. I'd love to hear how it is that, that these Christian doctrines have actually helped you engage with these texts rather than be a detriment or a hindrance to learn from these texts. It's always been a puzzle for me, I guess, that that it can work that getting deeper into the Bible would would push you away from culture. Um, it, it seems to me that, that really the opposite is the case, at least in my experience, that the better I get to know the Bible, the more fascinated I get with, uh, with the way that, that, that different cultures work out the same sort of questions that the Bible um, is dealing with. I, I think it would be helpful to, to just sort of put some flesh on the bones of the way in which the, these thinkers can be useful for Christians, because I think there's a lot of confusion around that, and, and it's quite a polarized debate. So what, what you often get is two dichotomized positions. People either say something like this, this, this postmodern thinking or post-enlightenment thinking or wherever you want to draw your line is, is unremittingly evil. Uh, and the only thing that the church ought to be doing is, is resisting it, might and main. There's nothing of any worth uh, in that. Uh, and then you, you get the other side with people saying, no, this, this is really showing us where the next reformation needs to be. Unless the church embraces this sort of thinking, um, then we're going to sink without trace and become utterly culturally irrelevant. And you, 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 en you end up with this very unappetizing choice <laughs> between completely coming on board with this thought and, and completely rejecting it. Um, but there are a lot of different ways in which the, the, the Bible, I think, can, can come into conversation and debate with these sort of thinkers. Um, for example, there's a, a really thought-provoking book by a guy called Merrill Vestfall, Suspicion and Faith, he calls it. And the subtitle is, interestingly, The Religious Uses of Modern Atheism. Uh, and in that book, he's arguing that uh, Nietzsche and Marx and Freud uh, actually perform a function for our society similar to the function of biblical prophets. Uh, they're pointing out that the blind spots uh, and the weaknesses in the way that, that society thinks uh, in a way that's, um, I think, insightful for Christians and, and even pointing out ways uh, in which Christians may have uh, come in line with the ambient culture more than we would like to admit. You know, our, our thinking is always intermixed with the, the, the thought of the culture around us. It would be naive of us, incredibly naive of us, to assume that it isn't. Uh, and therefore, reading these figures can help us to see some of our own blind spots. Not, not that they can add to the Bible, by no means, but that they can show us things in the Bible that we'd be missing uh, because we've been um, sort of too uh, closely adhering to the cultural narratives of our age. Um, or you can think of some of these thinkers as, you know, what the medieval church would have called a preparatio evangelica, um, set, setting out certain ways of thinking that can predispose people uh, to accepting the gospel or that can predispose people to see the inadequacy uh, of non-biblical ways of engaging with the world. And you can also, and this is something that um, thinkers like uh, John Milbank and David Bentley Hart do, you can see these thinkers as 
um, themselves symptoms of the things that they reject, you know, so they rail against modernity, for example, these postmodern thinkers. Uh, but part of uh, Milbank and David Bentley Hart's argument is that um, they, they protest too much, they're too much on board with the modernity uh, that they're rejecting. Uh, and that can help you uh, also as a Christian to, to just discern, I guess, the times, if you want to put it that way, to see that how implicit, complicit we are with, with certain ways of thinking. Um, and then finally, there's a, a way of engaging with these thinkers that sees them as Christian heretics. Uh, so that they're taking a Christian reality, a biblical reality, and in somehow twisting or, or reducing or taking part of it uh, and, and blowing that up to be the whole reality, uh, which, you know, which results in a, in a heretical position. And Tom Holland has been so helpful in this, hasn't he? in his book, Dominion, uh, showing us how so much of our culture in all its different aspects uh, is shot through with biblical truths and how it need not necessarily be that way. It is peculiar of our culture that it is so deeply, um, uh, theoretically Christian. Uh, and I think that's another way to read these thinkers. So, so when we say uh, they're useful or we can engage with them, that there's a lot of different things that you can mean by that. It doesn't necessarily mean you need to agree with what they're saying in its own terms, that you need to accept their position and, and sort of integrate it uh, into Christianity. There, there's a subtlety to the way that you can uh, think about these, these uh, particular philosophies from a Christian point of view. There's, there's a book, um, I'm sure you're familiar with it, by Yaroslav Pelikan, um, Fools for Christ, where he, he kind of maps out a, a variety of thinkers. He start, I think he starts with Paul and he kind of works his way up. And there's a chapter on Nietzsche there that I remember reading in seminary and really being struck by the fact that here's Pelican, a Christian historian, drawing out of Nietzsche what's valuable. And as a young Christian man 25 years ago, that was kind of, you know, to me, sort of a radical idea. Like, well, Nietzsche's no, he's, 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 there's nothing valuable in Nietzsche. And, and, and however, he gave me those eyes in a way, or maybe the first example, you know, the first example for me of, how to think Christianly, as it were, how to think through some of these thinkers. And what, it, what struck me as, as a, a young man who, who um, was, had a bit of a pedestrian interest in philosophy um, uh, in an undergrad and a bit in graduate school, you know, and kind of tracing up 20th century philosophy through existentialism into postmodernism and you know, reading what they were trying to say and, and I'm now talking, you know, moving up to, you know, people very influenced by Nietzsche, like Foucault, you know, and, 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 and this, this whole notion of, of how we ought to live within the, uh, this kind of closed, you know, what Charles Taylor calls this kind of imminent frame, right? And realizing it's actually quite biblical of a response in the sense that without a God who reveals himself, this is all we're left with, right? Uh, you talked about God's, you know, personal nature and his relational nature. And that was beautiful. This is at the bedrock of creation. And yet it's also the fact that God reveals himself, right? Like he's, he's spoken into this world and revealed himself in a way from outside the system so that we might have kind of a North star. We, we can have something which is God's revelation, which we can point to and say that at least I know is true. Um, and it, and it, it struck me that I think a lot of Christians respond to sort of postmodernism as if it's kind of obviously ridiculous Right. As you were saying, there are these two poles and it's kind of obviously ridiculous. And I always felt like, well, 
No, it doesn't seem like it is. As a matter of fact, if you don't believe in a God who reveals himself, then this is what you're left with. This is your best bet, right? You know, with Richard Rorty, you can say, well, you, you can't do the Holocaust here. So, you know, that, that's all you're left with, right? Um, I don't know. I was, I'm thinking, I was thinking about it, particularly as I was reading through, thinking through creation in Genesis 1 and 2 and the fact of God being creator, personal, relational God who also reveals himself. He reveals the truth about himself. Is that, a, is that a major factor for you, that this idea of God is revelatory? Well, absolutely. I mean, to the extent that we, um, uh, as Christians, base the way that we think and seek to, to measure the way that we think uh, against the, the Bible, the scriptures, um, then the idea that God has revealed himself is, is fundamental to that. And, and it's another fundamental distinctive. Uh, I guess, uh, of the Christian view of reality, that, that a lot of uh, the way that, that um, secular thought is, is working is, is very much bottom up. You know, here we are, let's figure it out. Let's use the tools that we've got to, to work out how reality works. Um, whereas I think that the Christian view is much richer than that. Uh, it's not simply the reversal of that. It's not simply that God gives us everything on a plate right. um, and we turn off our brains and just osmose it. Uh, and then uh, we don't need to think anymore. I think that's a caricature of Christian thinking. I think it's actually a, a, a richer, more complex way of engaging with the world than simply working it all out for ourselves. Um, there, there is, you know, God's revealed word, um, at which uh, shows us uh, the way that the universe is, which, you know, the Bible says uh, resonates with, with things that are deep within us. God has put eternity in our hearts. Um, and uh, to to turn away from God, you know, Romans one is to reject the truth. So it's not as if this is this is hitting a blank slate when it comes to it. Yeah. Um, and then you know, there's there's so much that we still need to work out. You know, so how do you take biblical teaching and apply it to any one of the issues that's going around in our culture? You know, that's not there in black and white. You got to think that through. Got to work it out. So it's it's a multifaceted epistemology, I guess, based on the the, the trunk of the fact that God has uh, revealed Himself to us in the Scriptures. Um, but if that's all you say in terms of a Christian epistemology, I, I think you've, you've, you've done half the job. Right, right. And it has to, I guess the thing that became more apparent to me was the idea of, the idea of us saying anything true about the world is attendant to the fact that God reveals himself. Now, to use John Frame's language, he doesn't reveal exhaustively all that we need to know. He gives us all of God's words on any particular issue, but it's not all. There, there, there's much more for us to do to steward our cognition and our reasoning abilities. Um, how is this, can I ask you, I'm, I'm just interested as someone who um, studied philosophy in the academy, how was your endeavor received or how has it been received by your non-Christian colleagues? It's um, a really interesting question. I, I think that a lot of the writing I do is uh, within uh, the context of speaking to to a secular academy about secular philosophers. Um, and there's sort of, I'm, I'm not sort of waving a flag on every page saying, here I am as a Christian talking about this. Um, I think if you, uh, if you know that that's where I am coming from, you can see it in the way, I hope that you can see it, I should say, in the way that I engage with thinkers, uh, seeking to um, uh, uh, understand them in their own terms, to, to give them the, the dignity uh, of being able to um, uh, set out things in the way they want it to be set out and, and assuming, I guess, the, the best of people. I think there's a lot of criticism on all sides and Christians are guilty of this, but they're not the only ones that are guilty of this. 
uh, of assuming that people who disagree with you are somehow in bad faith or somehow have an agenda that's, that's below the surface. Uh, and, and I think at least in, in a first engagement with, with thinkers, whoever they are, we, we do them a disservice when we assume that they're hiding something and what they really want to say is different to what they're saying. So I, so I try to engage with thinkers as they present themselves. And I guess to, to think not only why does this particular philosopher think that what she or he is saying is true, but why do they think that it's good? Like, can I, can I walk in their shoes? Can I think myself into their position such that this is really attractive as a position? And what do you have to assume about the world in order to be excited by what they're saying or in order to think that it's a really good thing to be saying? And I think that's a, a courtesy we can extend uh, to thinkers as Christians. You know, there, there, may, there may come a point where you need to say, no, I, I do think there's more going on than that. You know, you don't need to be uh, uh, naive, but I think there's a, there's a courtesy, there's a civility to extend to thinkers that, that Christians have a particularly strong uh, reason to, uh, to engage in. And, and I hope, um, although it's not really for me to say, is it, but I hope that that is a, a feature of my scholarship. We've really enjoyed reading Thinking Through Creation in the Institute of Theology and Public Life uh, Foundational course. And it really is a terrific uh, bedrock for studying philosophy, ethics, public theology. And I see in it um, uh, an outward focus as well beyond what you're saying in the vein of what you're saying here, extending that thought in that um, it's been observed about Augustine in writing City of God that he explained to the Roman Empire better than they could themselves from the perspective of the Bible, what was going on, what was going wrong and so on with their culture. And it seems to me that uh, some of the same motivation is behind your work in the conversation here in the, in the, the book itself. There's a love of neighbor. There's a taking seriously that there's a hunger for meaning and purpose and a frustration at not reaching it. So I wonder if you could talk about that as a motivation in your work. Yes, absolutely. I think you've just framed it much more uh, adequately than I can, Jennifer. So I refer you to the question. Uh, let, let me try and add, add something if I can. Um, yes, there's, there's a lot, isn't there? And there's an increasing amount, perhaps, of failure to listen um, uh, among many different groups in society and Christians are not exempt from that. Um, and uh, I've, I've tried to uh, apply a maxim that I first came across in, in the writing of Paul Ricoeur, but it, he didn't invent it. It's, it's the idea of audi alteram partem, listen to the other side, uh, try and understand it from the inside before uh, you, you, know, you take up the pen to, to critique something. Um, and, and I think it's a principle that's reflected in, in a lot of Christian thought as well. Um, if you think, for example, of John Stott's idea of double listening, uh, which is one of the, the, the real lodestars that I've tried to follow uh, in the way that I engage in, in my Christian writing. Um, there's, there's a beautiful quotation, uh, and I don't think I could ever put it better than this, so I, I might just um, uh, use Stott's words to try and uh, frame my answer. He says, we, we listen to the word, the scripture, uh, with humble reverence, anxious to understand it, uh, and resolved to believe and obey what we've come to understand. 
Um, and so there, there's, there's a radical holding on to the Bible. There's no sense of in order to engage with culture, we need to loosen our grip on the Bible uh, or to take our noses out of particular biblical passages. Quite to the contrary, for start, we need to listen harder, uh, more carefully to the word. Uh, but then he goes on, uh, we listen to the world with critical alertness, uh, anxious to understand it too, and resolved not necessarily to believe and obey it, but to sympathize with it and to seek grace to discover how the gospel relates to it. And I, I'm blown away by the, the, the depth and the richness of that quotation. Um, so first of all, that there's an asymmetry in the way that we listen to, to the Bible and to the world. We, we don't uh, listen to the culture as if it were a second Bible. Uh, but nor do we simply listen to it for start in order to, to debunk or to oppose it. Um, you know, the way that he puts it is seeking grace to discover how the gospel relates to it. Uh, and that's the way that I've tried to, uh, to engage with, with, with Derrida and Foucault and Deleuze and others uh, in the books that I've, I've written on them, uh, to give them the, the dignity of being uh, heard in, in their own terms, uh, to try and find out what it is about the positions that make them so attractive, not only true, but good and beautiful to the people who hold them. And then to, to, to bring the Bible in, into the deepest conversation that I can with those thinkers, not simply to find the quickest way of debunking it, uh, but to try and really get into the nitty gritty of the assumptions behind these positions uh, and uh, show how, how the Bible configures things differently. Uh, and, um, and, and in that way to have a, a, a respectful um, but robust conversation. Uh, between these different thinkers in the Bible. Jennifer uh, Patterson here mentioned that, uh, that we have uh, several of our classes reading your book, uh, Thinking Through Creation. And, uh, and I'm, I've actually been sitting in her class myself for, the last, for this, uh, this semester. And she made reference to what you refer to as diagonalization, as sort of being not being feeling stuck between two dichotomies, but kind of penetrating beyond those as your options and looking for a more uh, biblical alternative. First, I think that's, that's so fantastic and so insightful. And, and I must confess things that I've actually tried to encourage people to do myself. So it's always encouraging when I can, when I can read someone smarter than me realizing the same thing. I, I'm curious, what, what inspired you to come up with this as, as a way to kind of bring up a, a certain sense of wisdom and, and insight into to dialogues that we oftentimes just get caught up in on uh, one of two sides. I don't know where I originally got the idea from. What I do know is that I'm not the first to think of it. I think perhaps the, the, the best way to explain it would be, I, I've put a label on something that people have been doing for a long time, but might not have realized that they were doing. Um, and that's often what philosophy does. You know, Gilles Deleuze calls philosophy the creation of concepts. You're, uh, you're, you're, you're putting words to something. You're making something visible and therefore usable in a way that it might not have been previously. So what I call diagonalization is something that Christians have done for millennia. The, the idea that any culture, and ours perhaps in particular, offers us a whole set of either or choices. Um, you know, so it's, it's philosophically speaking, it's the one or the many, uh, or it's facts versus values, uh, or, you know, a little more every day would be, it's the political right or it's the political left. And, and all over, you've got, you've got these dichotomous choices. Which one are you going to choose? Um, 
And from a biblical point of view, they're almost always <laughs> supremely unhelpful, these choices, because you want to say, well, I, I don't fit in this schema that you're giving me. I'm, I'm not right over here and I'm not right over there either. Um, and yet so much of contemporary theory is, is captured by these dichotomies and they're forced on us all the time. I, are, you, are you black or are you white? You know, are you, are you over here or are you over there? And it's, well, no, <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really not. Um, but the problem is that if you, if you reject the, the terms in which that's put, you, you can come over as just being uncommitted um, or, or, or vacillating or some sort of, you know, cardigan and slippers wearing middle of the road granddad who doesn't want to upset anybody and doesn't want to sort of pin pin their their colors to the mast um and so diagonalization is is a way of dealing with those dichotomies um that doesn't come out in favor of one or the other but tries to show that th these dichotomous choices that we face in society are very often both reductive heresies uh, they're both taking something of a richer, more complex biblical reality, and they're reducing it and cutting it off from other parts of reality uh, and blowing it up to the point where it, where it is a heresy. Uh, and so the, the biblical response is to, to, to cut across the division. And that's where this idea of the diagonal comes from. You're cutting across the division. You're not refusing the two options outright. You're not embracing them both. You're not embracing either of them. You're, I guess if you wanted to describe it, you're, you're completing them, you're, you're transfiguring them into something richer than neither of them uh, can achieve on its own. And the, the word diagonalization is a way of just trying to make visible um, that way of thinking that, that Christians have been using for, for such a long time uh, and to, to make it available uh, and, and accessible to Christians who, who are dissatisfied with the, the, the yes or no options that we're given in so many areas of society, but, but want to be able to come at that biblically and don't want to be just seen as vacillating or uncommitted, uh, but want to reach for something higher than these dichotomous choices offer us. And again, so helpful, genuinely so helpful. One interesting doctrine that we're seeing uh, really become very popular in um, in the discussion of theology and culture has been the, uh, the creational doctrine of the image of God. And you write about it in your book and spend uh, quite a good amount of, uh, of your book on one section there on the image of God. I guess I'm curious as someone who has done some extensive work in, in terms of the understanding of the image of God and its application in culture, have you been encouraged by the way that this has been used in, in some of these dialogues uh, in recent days? And have there been some uses uh, that you thought may have been more helpful than others? I think the, the image of God is used a lot, isn't it? Um, <laughs> it's, it's one of those go-to doctrines when, when Christians are engaging with culture. And I, rather than picking out individual cases and saying it's used well or badly here, um, perhaps the, the principle that often distinguishes between good and bad uses of it is whether the doctrine is taken in isolation um, and you know so this would, would go something like we are created in the image of god therefore you know, human beings are are important well yes as, as far as it goes but but the bible says a lot more than that we are created in the image of god i think that the best way that this or any doctrine is deployed in in thinking ideas through is when it's, it's put in the context of the biblical narrative of creation follow redemption uh, so absolutely human beings are created in the image of god 
And that idea can do a lot of work for you in cultural critique. Uh, so for example, um, uh, one thing that I mentioned in the book is that it's the image of God, not God himself. Uh, so there's a, there's a humbling of humanity here. We're not God. Uh, we don't have the ultimate uh, say uh, or ultimate power in the universe. And, and that is a, a chastening collect, uh, corrective to, to a lot of ways that, that people think about humanity today. You know, but the flip side of that, of course, is that we are the image of God, um, of the, uh, the creator and sustainer and redeemer uh, of the universe in a way that um, a beautiful sunset is not said to be in the image of God in the same way, uh, or even uh, an amazing ecosystem, or even the world itself is not said to be in the image of God. And so in, in a way that, that Tim Keller is so good at, at bringing out in a lot of his writing, um, this, this idea of the image of God is preventing us from falling into either end of um, uh, either pole of an unhelpful spectrum, either exalting human beings too much uh, and putting ourselves in the place of God, uh, or of belittling human beings and uh, saying uh, that we are, we are of no account. And I think it's, it's at its best when uh, it, you, you follow on through from the creation, from the image of God, uh, to show uh, how uh, the, uh, the fall uh, and sin doesn't do away with that image, um, but uh, uh, qualifies the way in which we think about human beings in the world. Um, and if, if we had more time, it would be wonderful to go into uh, a really, really important idea, uh, I think, in the Bible. And it, an, almost a unique cultural idea, a real biblical distinctive that we can call the asymmetry of good and evil. Uh, so good and evil are not equal and opposite in a biblical frame. You know, God is not the equal and opposite of the devil. That being created in the image of God is not the equal and opposite of being fallen. That there's a primacy, both both temporally uh, and ontologically in terms of who we are in our most deepest being of being in the image of God. Um, and that, just to say one sentence on that, because I think it's such an explosive idea and such a, a distinctive biblical idea, that separation of the origin of good from the origin of evil in the biblical frame, the fact that Genesis 1 is not Genesis 3, uh, allows you a much richer complex and more adequate anthropology uh, than if you have to account uh, for good and evil uh, uh, on the same level as it were. So that's really important uh, that you separate the image of God uh, from the fall, but, the, but the, you take account of both of them. And then of course, redemption has so much to say about the image of God as well. You know, he is, Christ is the image of the invisible God. All this image of God language gets taken up into Christ. Uh, and used of Christ, and then we in him. So uh, unless you've got that whole biblical narrative, I think it's, it's hard to, to do justice to a, a biblical view of the image of God. And, and yes, we can use it sort of locally to say various things, but you take it out of that context, and it's very easy for the image of God itself, for the idea itself to become heretical, uh, taken out of uh, the, this broader biblical framework that, that narrativizes it. You know, there's a story of the image of God in the Bible. Um, and if you, you just take one chapter of that story, uh, it's easy to, to overinflate or to underplay certain aspects of the biblical reality. 
The title of the book that we've been referencing, the full title is Thinking Through Creation, Genesis 1 and 2 as Tools of Cultural Critique. And the subtitles is intriguing as the, the main title. But, but I also don't want to rush past that main title because you've loaded a lot of uh, your approach into that, and in, in particularly vis-a-vis -vis the critical theories that we encounter in culture today. I wonder if you could just unpack that title a little bit, Thinking Through Creation. Yeah, thank you, Jennifer. I I guess it's a it's a plea that we not only explain the Bible to the culture around us. I think which, which Christians are, are are often very good at. We it's we're aware that that's something we need to do. It's apologetics. It's it's helping people from out, outside a Christian frame of reference to to understand what the Bible says, and that's that's really important. But but it it seems to me. And I think you can see this in the history of Christian thought. You were referring to Augustine a moment ago. You think of his city of God. What's he doing? He's, he's actually explaining the culture around him through the lens of the Bible. So he's not trying to um, explain the Bible to the culture alone. He's trying to explain the culture through the Bible and through biblical doctrines. And I, I, I think that that's perhaps one thing that we're not quite as sharp on nowadays as explaining the Bible to the culture. And so thinking through the Bible is the idea of using the, the whole biblical narrative and creation, fall, redemption, consummation as a, a lens through which to read culture. Uh, how do we understand our culture in, in the light of this biblical reality? How can we explain culture to itself um, humbly and rigorously in a way that is perhaps more insightful than that culture is able to explain itself to itself. And it's often the case, isn't it, that, that the, the, the position that we're least able to explain adequately is the one that we hold because it's like the fish in water, you know, this is just what there is. What do you mean that I need to explain what's around me? And Christians in our culture, in, in contemporary Western culture, I guess, are very aware mostly of being in a minority of, of the way that we think and live not being normal. And so we're, we're aware of the need to, to explain and to think through the way that we live. Uh, but for the majority culture, for the hegemonic culture, there, there's no such imperative. If I think like a, a modern secular Western person, that's not challenged a whole lot. When I switch on the television, when I go to YouTube, there, there isn't, uh, I, I'm not being forced to, to, to think about the way that I think and to justify the way that I think every day. Uh, and perhaps therefore Christians are, are in a position of, um, a, a position of being more able than most, not because we're cleverer, but because we have this minority position of being able to look at society and see things in it that if we were part of the hegemonic culture, we wouldn't be able to see. And so when we explain the culture through the Bible, we may be able to see things um, that, uh, that are not apparent to the culture itself. This has been a really engaging and accessible book for students. And it at the same time deals with a broad range of philosophers, pretty sophisticated ideas, interweaves that very seamlessly. It's, it's really very well crafted. And you've just expressed how hard it is sometimes to be self-reflective, but I'm gonna ask you to be self-reflective about your approach to writing. You've, you've really done a great job at making 
very readily accessible uh, material here. And can you comment on that or give us insights about how you've come to that approach? I can try my best. Um, I think, again, it's, it's hard to dissect your own practice, isn't it? I'm probably the worst person in the world to ask about this, but I will try, I will try my best. Um, I remember something that my PhD supervisor said to me when I was writing about Derrida, and it's always stuck with me. He said, the best writing about Derrida doesn't write like Derrida. Uh, he said that the best explanations of him don't try to ape his idiom. Um, they don't dumb him down, but they just try to be clear. They try to say what they mean. They don't overuse Latinate words. They don't overcomplicate things. Uh, and they, they just try, I guess, to, to do the reader the service of explaining to her in the clearest way possible what's going on. Um, and I've tried, for better or worse, to, to use that principle. So whoever I'm writing about, I, I try to think of the, the reader uh, and what she needs to know and to explain in a way that's as clear as possible, you know, without dumbing down or without simplifying um, in a way that betrays the complexity of some of this thought. And then I suppose a lot of it is just, we read certain authors, don't we? We think, my goodness, wouldn't it be wonderful to write like that? Uh, and then we, you know, we try and think, well, what's going on here? What's this author doing? And I, I guess two examples of that for me would be C.S. Lewis, the way that he never wastes a word, does he? And you can read something that some, you can read 10 different people saying a thing, and then you read Lewis on that thing, and you think, that's it. He's, he's nailed it in one sentence, what they spent two pages flapping around about. Um, and so I guess that the more really great writing like that that we read, the, the, the more we might be able to appropriate some of that in our own writing. And I guess another thinker who's really helped me in terms of just the clarity with which he expresses things. Um, and I, I don't always agree with what he says, but I think the way he says it is incredibly uh, rich, is, is Francis Schaeffer uh, and the way that he can take very complex ideas uh, and without dumbing them down, present them in ways that are accessible to, you know, to thinking people, anyone who's willing to, um, to put some thought into it. Um, and it was from him that I also got the idea of using diagrams uh, in my writing, which I find personally helpful as a reader, as a writer. So um, if you know, people think more visually, trying to represent something as a in a diagram as well as in prose might just help to push people over the line of understanding. Chris, this is really useful material, especially your emphasis just on clear writing. Is that an implicit advocacy of analytic theology and philosophy over continental philosophy? And this a little bit tongue in cheek because I know you work with continental philosophy. But when I think about your work, I also think about James Anderson's work. And to me, James Anderson is kind of working on analytic philosophy and theology, but you're working on continental philosophy and theology. Can you say some of your own thoughts on analytic philosophy, its, its benefits or its disadvantages in comparison to continental and maybe uh, annoy some analytic fans, including myself? <laughs> um, well, what I can say, I think, is that the analytic continental divide is, is a dichotomy, isn't it? Um, and uh, we've been hammering the nail all through this uh, podcast about the, the way that dichotomies are unhelpful um, and we should reject the binary choice. So it, it, would, be, uh, it would be foolish of me to do anything different uh, at this point. Um, the, the analytic continental divide is, is very 1990s. 
Um, there's there's a lot happened since that was at its height. Um, and there's much more of, of a dialogue and an embrace and a, a cross-pollination now uh, than, there, than there was previously. So I think that's the first thing uh, that I'd say. Um, I think the writing clearly, um, it, it isn't something that I would necessarily um, simply identify with, with an analytic tradition. I think both of, both of those broad, very broad ways of conceiving philosophy um, uh, have examples of great clarity and, and have examples of obfuscation in them. And it's, it's also a question of, of matching the way that you speak to the way that, that the world is as well. And so let's just think of an example here. So if, if I were to say something like, a silly example, if I were to say something like, I cannot speak, um, then you, you would be well within your rights to say, well, hold on, what have you just done? <laughs> you know, you're, you're undermining what you're saying by the way that you're saying it. And for, for a lot of the, the thinkers that we've, for better or worse, labeled as continental, um, that reality is not completely transparent to our thought. Uh, there, there are complexities and nuances that don't suddenly disappear if we uh, uh, impose human language upon them. And in fact, human language sometimes creates rather than describing clarity. So that the question you've got to ask yourself is, well, if that's the way you think the world is, how should you talk about it? Um, and if you think, well, reality is, is, is obscure in really fundamental ways, but I'm going to talk about it as if it's limpidly transparent uh, and as if language gives an exhaustive account of it, then people reading your work would be well within their rights to say, but aren't you doing the same thing as the person who says, I can't speak English? You're, you're, you're trying to, to say one thing, but the way that you're saying it is, is pushing against what you're saying. And so I think for people like me who are writing to help people understand, um, there's a huge virtue in clarity. But if, if you're seeking to, to come to terms with reality and find an idiom for talking about it that's in line with, with the way that you see that reality, um, then I think that sometimes uh, clarity can become an idol uh, rather than um, something that, that always uh, serves you well. And, and of course, you can find um, uh, caricatures on both sides. Uh, and, but, but, but I think that, that the way that people write is important. And I guess, I guess part of this is, is probably illuminated by thinking, why do people write literature? What's going on there? Uh, and why is there such a thing as literary style? Why don't people just tell us what happened? Why doesn't Shakespeare just say, well, there's Romeo and there's Juliet, they fell in love, um, they ended up dying. Sorry if that's a spoiler. Uh, for anyone. Um, you know, why, why go through all this rigmarole of, of, of this flowery language? It's not adding anything. Well, I think that's a, and, and I, I guess you would agree, that's a very naive way of looking at the way that language works. You, that language bodies forth a way of being in the world. It, 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 it expresses a way of inhabiting reality. And when we when we go to a Shakespeare play, we're not just there for the plot. In fact, we're, not, we're really not there for the plot at all because his plots are really quite, quite extraordinary in many ways. It's, it's the way that language paints a world and, and invites us into a world uh, that, that, that is one of the reasons that, that his plays have such enduring value. And therefore, language isn't simply neutral. It isn't simply a, a perfectly polished window through which we look at the world. 
uh, it, it always inflects and makes visible uh, and emphasizes certain aspects of reality. And even the analytic idiom uh, in its you know, most caricatural form is, is not neutral. Um, there's um, a guy called Roy Kluzer wrote this great book, The Myth of Religious Neutrality, the idea that there's one degree zero way of inhabiting the world uh, that has no ideological bent whatsoever. And every um, departure from that is ideologically loaded, but there's, there's this one position that's absolutely neutral. And I think that's, that's the myth of, you know, again, the caricature of analytic thought, because that this is, that there's a lot of extremely helpful and valuable analytic thought that, that, that is uh, not doing this. But the caricature of it uh, is that there is, there is a zero, zero degree neutral discourse that doesn't buy into any particular view but that gives us reality as it is. And every departure from that is then ideological. Um, and the irony of that, of course, is that that is, is soaked through with a, a, a post-enlightenment, local, cultural, geographically restricted way of looking at the world. That is very situated as an ideology. Um, and yes, yeah, so that's my very long-winded answer uh, to your rather impish question. That's this conversation you, you you have two semiticists who wrote on poetry so hebrew and aramaic poetry on this call now now i've got all kinds of things that will totally take us abroad into uh, into other areas but this this is a fascinating conversation but I, I love that it's come back to writing and it's come back to expression in this way can i ask you as we're talking about the writers who have influenced you um, i'm interested as a philosopher today and, and we could talk about non-christian or christian you know, believing or non-believing philosophers, who are the philosophers you think are the most compelling, interesting, um, if they're Christian, you know, the, the most sort of biblical in their philosophical expression? Who, who are the philosophers of today that you mentioned C.S. Lewis, you know, of, of decades past, but today, who, who are you finding to be particularly uh, compelling? And you can give whatever caveats you want uh, when, when you give us their names. <laughs> yeah. Um. What an enticing question. Uh, let, me, let me begin by going back to Augustine. Um, I find it hard to think of anyone who has had such a rich and wide ranging vision of the, the way in which the, the truths of the Bible engage with the culture around at his age than, than Augustine has. Um, and uh, I, I wish I knew much more of him than I do. Uh, but I keep going back to him, especially the city of God, uh, as just an incredible, um, I, I think it's fair to say, unsurpassed cultural engagement. Um, and so he would definitely be, be high on my list. Um, I think different philosophers do different things, don't they? They're, they're the philosophers who are very systematic and careful and who, who defend a position immaculately. And, and there are the provocateurs. There are the philosophers who shake things up and who make you pay attention. Um, and uh, I think Cornelius Van Til is one of those. Uh, this is the way that John Frame describes him in John Frame's big book on Van Til. Um, he's, he's a trailblazer. Uh, he puts the catam on the pigeons and he's certainly done that for me. Uh, and again, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that I, I agree with everything that he writes, but then why, why would one expect to agree with every, everything that anyone writes, you know, if if the Bible is true and everybody is made in the image of God and fallen, then one would expect their 
to be in any book of philosophy that you pick up something that is useful uh, because only uh, only the devil is utterly evil uh, and you'd expect there to be in any book you pick up that is not the bible uh, things that are that are unhelpful or that, that have blind spots because only god uh, is ultimately wise and so i suppose that that one one part of an answer that i give to your book to, to your question is that uh, as Christians, we have a particularly open attitude, I think, to, to cultural production in general and to philosophy in particular, because we're predisposed to think that whatever philosopher we pick up, there's going to be something helpful here. Um, because, you know, in all culture, uh, that it's impossible completely to erase uh, the goodness of creation. Um, and we're also going to think, whoever it is, you know, if, if, if we can say, you know, Calvin, Augustine, that there's going to be things that they get wrong. Um, and therefore, uh, Christians have, have this, and this is a point, again, that Tim Keller makes, this, this unusual openness uh, to all philosophical streams uh, and this, this predisposition to think that there's going to be something interesting and worth reading in them in a way that if you have your ultimate good and your ultimate evil in this world, there, there are going to be some ways of thinking that are just simply absolutely wrong. So, if, for example, on a on a, a Marxist view, a classical Marxist view, um, the, the the idea that you know the the revolution is is driven by the proletariat and the bourgeoisie uh, is uh, is is a block to that necessary uh, shift uh, in history will will simply close you down to certain ways of thinking in an absolute way. Um, but the Christian is, is, isn't closed down to any way of thinking uh, in that way. Um, and so there, there should be, and you know, we're often guilty of not following through on this, but there should be um, a, a discerning, uh, biblically rigorous openness uh, to all sorts of philosophy from a Christian point of view. Um, I guess looking more, uh, more recently, it, it's often not Christian philosophers per se, but, but Christian thinkers who take ideas seriously, who I found most helpful. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking of, of C.S. Lewis again, G.K. Chesterton, my goodness, what riches there are uh, in his writing uh, and the way uh, in which he overturns and questions so many of the, the assumptions of the way that we think and the way that he vividly expresses uh, biblical ideas. Um, and, you know, closer to our own day, I think uh, Tim Keller is, is so wonderfully widely read and thoughtful about the way he engages with culture that there's a great deal uh, to learn from his writing as well. And then other contemporary Christian thinkers, uh, I've mentioned John Milbank and David Bentley Hart, again, wouldn't agree with everything they say, but then uh, why would one expect that to be a criterion of, of esteeming some things that they say? Uh, just very helpful theology and social theory are the beauty of the infinite. In, in just making very clear what, how odd Christianity is, I suppose is one way of putting it, how weird culturally a biblical way of looking at reality and engaging with reality is, and also how exciting that is, and therefore how fresh it is today, how little people know, uh, if they're not Christians who study the Bible regularly, about how um, unknown the Bible is in today's culture and, and how when you bring the Bible to bear on contemporary debates, whether they're in philosophy or society, you actually find that it's bringing fresh thinking to the table because these are just not ways that we, we usually think about things. And so thinkers like that are helpful 
in, in showing the, the weirdness in the best sense uh, of Christianity today. That's fantastic, Chris, and what a wonderful answer. Uh, we cannot wait for more of your writings, and I'd love to ask you about any future works that we can anticipate, anything that you're working on now that we can look out for. Um, well, there's the, the little book on Deleuze um, uh, in the PNR Great Thinker series that I think is coming out before the end of the year. Um, and what I try to do in, in that book, as well as in the other books in that series, is not simply write a book about Deleuze, but try and develop biblical patterns of thinking that are useful for engaging with Deleuze, but also with, with other philosophers more broadly as well, giving Christian readers tools that they can then take away into their own thinking and their own work and use in other contexts. And um, what am I allowed to say at this point? There may be a chance that the whole Thinking Through the Bible project will be coming out. Um, uh, I don't know. Um, I'm negotiating at the moment uh, with, um, with a particular uh, publisher uh, to see if we can bring it out as one volume. So a, a, a Genesis to Revelation sweep of which Thinking Through Creation will be one version of the, of the first chapter of that. Um, I'm incredibly excited by that prospect, but it's, it's not nailed down yet. So my hope, my prayer uh, is that that may be coming out, uh, but I'm not sure yet. That's our That's prayer. Excellent. It's a corporate thing. What a great project. Um, I've got a proposal for you. When, when lockdown comes down, you come to DC and teach thinking through the Bible as a, as a week-long intensive or, or whatever you'll, you'll be willing to give us. That would be an excellent class for our students and they would benefit from it greatly. It would be an absolute treat and privilege for me. I can think of very few things that I would enjoy more than doing that. Uh, Chris, it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, for everyone listening, check out his book, Thinking Through Creation, Genesis 1 and 2, as Cultural Critique, uh, an excellent book out by PNR, and uh, we all highly recommend it. Thank you, Chris, for joining us. Scott, can I also just throw in really quickly, thinkingthroughthebible.com, all one word, uh, where there's some material from Thinking Through Creation, there's some material from uh, other projects that I'm working on as well. So people may be interested in that. Absolutely. Th thinkingthroughthebible.com. Wonderful. We'll put that in the show notes too for this podcast. Well, thank you, Chris, for joining us. It's wonderful. Thank you, Gray, Scott, Jennifer, Peter. It's been a real joy. Thank you. And to everyone else, take care. Just real quickly, I, I had a chance to start reading your book uh, about a week ago, about maybe halfway through, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, one of the little, um, uh, uh, I, I guess, little things that I try to do is to get signatures of authors uh, of their books. And now uh, there's no way I'm going to be able to get it with you, but if you don't mind, I'm going to hold your book up here and take a picture. And this is about the closest that I can get, I think. So I know it's a little nerdy, but... Uh, 
but you know, this, this is sort of my so way. I'm not a part of this. Well, this is sort of my way of showing that I know people to my own family. That way, you know, they could actually be proud of me for some reason. And so, 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 just bear with me one quick moment here. Okay, folks, thank you. Thank you for bearing with me, everyone. You know what the most horrendous part of you know what the most horrendous part of that is. My point of view. We're we're in stage four lockdown here in Melbourne, and the the hairdressers have been closed for about three months, and so I've got these <laughs> huge curly locks coming out of the back, and I'm going to be immortalized now in this well, photo. I guess <laughs> that's the nice thing about uh, you know, since we don't get a chance to see you on a regular basis, I'm not sure what the normal would be. So you look great <laughs> to me. You look terrific, and so I'm rocking the new fashion. This time next year everyone's going to have it like this <laughs> we'll be sure to tell everyone it was against your will that you didn't want to participate <laughs> in that at all well, well I'll, I'll keep this for private personal uses until otherwise notified so that, that would be very much appreciated okay <laughs>